Let's turn to God in prayer. Our Father, what we're thanking you now for is the opportunity for a year-end communion experience. Maybe we're connecting the dots of 2018. We see some extremes of highs and lows interwoven with some plateaus. We try to make sense of it all because we know it's the trajectory into what's coming our way in 2019. And in all the variables that we experienced in 2018, there was the constant, you. You were there. You're involved. We know that everything works together for the good to them that love you, are called according to your purpose. Doesn't mean everything felt good. Doesn't even mean everything was good. But everything worked together for the good. And so, Father, we trust you for that as we project ahead as to what comes our way in this, in this year. So, Father, this morning as we find ourselves bridging between the old and the new, between 2018 and 2019, as well as connecting dots between Christmas and the celebration of New Year's, and trying to make sense of how all this relates, the most important thing we can do is to turn to you and to turn to your word, which explains you. So, Father, we're asking in the coming minutes is that once again, you would warm these hearts, that you engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here again now to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. At graduation time, when our family always tried to find something of significance that we could offer in terms of a graduation-type gift that would re relate to where uh, one of our children's at, their point of life, at that stage of life. Wonderful children, all three of them are adults now and thankful for who they are, how God created them. The story goes to my thought processes where the second of the three, Jill, as he was approaching a time of graduation, I was thinking about what kind of gift could I get Jill. And so I went to an antique store and I was looking at time, looking at watches looking at timepieces and asking now, is there something here that can relate to him? Because he's always fascinated about things like this. And I spotted one. It was a timepiece. And so uh, I turned to the owner of the shop and I said, I'd love for something to be inscribed on the back of, of this timepiece. And so he, he got his pen and paper and he would take time to write it down and then inscribe it in the weeks to come. And here's what I had him write down. My times are in your hand. And then underneath Psalm 31, verse 15. And so it was a graduation Sunday, as I did for each of our children. When it was time for them to come up on the platform, I, I slipped the gift into his hand. And I thought about that inscription on the back of his timepiece upon graduation. 
my times are in your hand. And I connect the dots, you see, to this passage of Scripture we're exploring this morning, where God has, uh, through the Apostle Paul, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. I want to explore this whole matter of God and time with you in the minutes to come, because what's critically important for you and me to understand is that time is not sovereign over God, but rather God is sovereign over time. As I've penned in your insert this morning, God doesn't experience the time pressures that you and I do. It's not affected by the aging process that the passage of time does to us. And he alone is able to bring time into perfect harmony with eternity. I find that when I'm exploring the matter of time, I have to, maybe you think this way too, to be able to distinguish between the timeless, the timely, and the time-bound. And I try to discard the time-bound, and I ask, how can I take what is timeless and apply it in a way that's timely so I can be current and effective and contemporary in what I do? I have to bear in mind in all this, furthermore, that God is the owner and you and I, we are the managers of time. We can't dictate to God what we want done as if we're the owners and he's the manager. Another thing that comes to my mind when thinking about time is that when you and I, when we, when we mismanage time, then our time comes under the influence of those dominant people or those dominant circumstances in life that begin to dictate to us how we should live, when we should go about doing things, and so on. We have to establish early on who's sovereign. He's owner. We're managers. We establish that God is purposeful in his time, and that God has placed time in such a way that you and I understand that it was actually established in eternity past. But at the same time, we bear in mind that what God has done is something incredibly remarkable when it comes to the way in which you and I are to be able to ponder the significance of time. Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you and I are informed in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Don't force the beauty. He makes everything beautiful, but there's not a period right there. No. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And right when you catch your breath at that point, it goes on to say, also, he has put eternity into men's heart. Which means then, you've got this eternal vacuum inside you when you entered into this world that can't be filled by temporal stuff. Rather, this eternal vacuum is there because the eternal God is meant to be there. The three in one. The sovereign one. 
And so what I want to do is to allow for time and eternity to intersect in our life experiences this morning. Think about them. So maybe you've got a timepiece. And as you're thinking about that timepiece, you're thinking about the fact that you've got a God who has made this critical statement in Psalm 31, verse 15. My times are in your hand. And now you and I are ready to explore this passage of Scripture together. I'm going to break it down, in essence, into two parts, where verses 1 through 3 deal with what I'll call the time of preparation, where people were preparing for Christ's coming. And then in verses 4 through 7, the time of realization, where people had come to realization that Christ has come. Now, you pick it up with me, and we're going to explore this phrase by phrase, but succinctly as we get ready for the bread and the cup. And he starts off with this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. You say, come what, Gary? Come again? Where is he? What's this all about? Well, link it in your Bible to the preceding verse that comes at the end of the preceding chapter. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Link that now to the very next verse you started with. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. You say, Garrett, we don't, we don't talk like this in, in 2018 going into 2019 living. Well, we're dealing with history at this point, and so we've got to work with it. Go on. But... Though he is the owner of everything here, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now let's begin to explore this. And I was thinking, well, is there a writer in particular who could state this succinctly? And I thought, well, among all the writers of the commentaries, William Barclay does a tremendous job not only with word studies, but as well as with history, weaving history into the text. Just stay away from his theology. I'll leave something to be desired. But when you and I are exploring here what's found in these verses, what Barclay does is that he pulls together what was happening historically in, in Judaism, as well as what was happening in the Roman culture, as well as with the Greeks. And because we have, in the last three years, uh, been in Rome and been in Greece and now Israel. This sort of comes together for me, converges. Now, Barclay says in the Jewish world, for example, on the first Sabbath after a boy had passed his 12th birthday, his father took him to the synagogue where he became, quote, a son of the law. The father then uttered this benediction. Blessed be thou, O God, who has taken from me the responsibility for this boy. Link that now to what you just read. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In other words, the Jews had a clear line of demarcation from when a boy became a man. What about the Greeks? Barclay tells us in Greece... A boy was under his father's care from 7 until 18. He then became what you and I might call a cadet. And for two years, he was under the direction of the state. 
And then there was a celebration when he crossed into manhood. In Rome, Roman law. Boy grew up. Between the ages of 14 and 17, there is this celebration that was held. And then he's conducted by his friends and relations down to the forum and formally introduced to the public. There's a ceremony. And at that point, on a definite day, he left boyhood and entered manhood. In all three cases, now, what you find woven in here is something that the readers would have understood as the Apostle Paul wrote. There was now and there was a not yet. The now is that he is the heir. The not yet is that he has not experienced the fullness of what has been yet promised to him. The now and the not yet. Now, the Old Testament, the people had the now. They had the promise of what was to come, but the not yet, they were waiting for Messiah to arrive. So he uses this illustration in verse 2. He's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And now you and I begin to explore this, understand this, appreciate this. Sitting on my desk in our office is... uh, an hourglass. Uh, our youngest child, son, uh, he, he loves to walk into my office and he'll flip the hourglass upside down because he, he likes to watch the sand and the flow. It's the passage of time. But there's only one problem with that hourglass, you see, is that um, there's certain sands that are a little larger than the other sands and get stuck somewhere in the neck. And so... What Ben typically does is that he flicks it and then all of a sudden the sand begins to move again. Otherwise, it seems as though time stands still. Now, there's times when you and I would wish that time would stand still. But God is sovereign over time, and so the sands of time continue to pour. And here are the Jewish people now, and there is this date that has been set. They understood that there was a date set from movement from childhood to manhood for the boy. Likewise, then, the illustration was such that the Heavenly Father has set a date whereby the Jewish people would recognize the fulfillment of the promise in terms of the Messiah was to come. So you pick it up now in verse 3, and he applies the situation in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then the great part of verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In other words, there was to be a time of preparation for Jesus coming. My mind goes back at this point to a a story of Shackleton. Some of you know it, might remember it. It's one of his expeditions to the Antarctic. And he had to leave some of his men on Elephant Island, and he was going to return and get them. But he was delayed, and by the time he was able to get back, he found that the sea had frozen over, the men were cut off, and three times he tried to reach them, reading from his biography. But his efforts failed each time. Finally, in his last effort, he found a narrow channel through the ice. Guiding his small ship back to the island, The biographer tells us he was excited to find his men not only alive and well, 
but prepared to get aboard. Soon they were on their way home. And when the excitement ended, Shackleton asked how it was that they were ready to get aboard so promptly. And they were told that every morning their leader instructed them as they got and rolled up their sleeping bag these words, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are in essence saying, get ready, boys and girls. The boss, the Messiah, might come today. And I thought about that while standing at the Wailing Wall, you see, as, as there were Jewish scholars to my left and to the right in Jerusalem, as they were meditating on Torah, rocking up and down, because they were waiting and praying and longing for Messiah to come, but... For them, Messiah has not yet come. They were waiting for that first time. And so throughout Israel, then, their marker for time is not B.C.A.D., but B.C.E., before the Common Era. And then the Common Era, they don't have a, a before Christ, after Christ type thing. They have Common Era type thinking. They've lost their sense of time. Now what you and I have to do as we enter into 2019 is to renew a sense of time. Time as it relates to eternity. As I read just a few moments ago, God has placed eternity in our hearts. Furthermore, he makes everything beautiful, but he makes everything beautiful in its time. You've got to wait for it to happen. You can't force the beauty. Some of us are looking at something pretty ugly right now. But allow for the beauty to unfold itself in the sovereignty of God because God is sovereign over time. Time is not sovereign over God. Now you pull all that together then and you've got the, the first period, so to speak, of time in verses 1, 2, and 3, what I call the time of preparation. But now the second period occurs in 4 through 7, what I call the time of realization. You pick it up now in verse 4, and notice it begins with what has been italicized for you and for me, but when the fullness of time had come, not partial time, the fullness of time. So now we get the sum total of what God is all about here by introducing Jesus Christ into the world when everything was prepared for him. The preparation would lead to the realization. Now, again, in your insert this morning, what you realize then is that God brought his son Jesus Christ into this world at a time when the Mosaic law was established for the Romans there was the establishment of the Roman roads so that the missionary cause would be able to go out in full force. And with regard to the Greek language, there was a universal language now in which the gospel could be communicated with a common tongue. Everything was in place. The preparation leads to the realization. And there's God. Strategically works itself for the fulfillment of time. I was thinking about that one time when our family, some of our family members were in Rome. 
And standing next to our guide, Jabba, I said, Jabba, and he's, he was brilliant in the way in which he was guiding us through Rome and the likes. I said, could you show me where Caesar Augustus would have issued his decree about Jesus being born? Well, we were entering into the area where, where Caesar Augustus would have reigned, positioned us there, just simply nodded his head as he continued to lecture the big group. And my mind went then to Luke chapter 2, which we covered in our Christmas Eve service, where it began brilliantly in those days. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar's not sovereign over time. God was sovereign over time, and God was sovereign over Caesar, so that Caesar would issue his decree in God's strategic time. And so everybody's scurrying back to their home turf, and lo and behold, here's a Joseph and a Mary making their way back to a Bethlehem, and we are in keeping with what Paul is writing in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that in the fullness of time, God sends forth his son. She arrives on the scene, and she has not given birth prematurely, but there was a prophecy eight centuries prior in Micah that this, Mike, this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. They get to Bethlehem, and then we are told by the physician in Luke chapter 2, and while they were there, the time came. For her to give birth. You see the significance of this? God is sovereign over time. Time's not sovereign over God. God is sovereign over your 2019 coming your way. 2019's not sovereign over God. There will not be accidents in time. There will be appointments with time. Jesus understood that. Because when he was at that wedding gathering in Canaan of Galilee, his mother thought the time was just right. He'd been invited to be there. The wine runs out. The mother of Jesus then said to him, they have no wine. You can almost see the Jewish mama saying, come on, come on. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Which is a reminder to us that God being sovereign over time, you cannot let anybody hijack the schedule that God has established. And so here we have it now, and there's a subtlety that the very first temptation Jesus was experienced time-wise was from his own, sister, from his own mother. Have you ever pondered that? A push for the premature presentation. But allow for preparation to lead to realization. When the fullness of time had come, here's your first God marker. There were three markers of God found in these verses. Here's your first one. It's underlined for you. God sent forth his son. Now, having stated that, what I want you to notice is that there are double emphasis now upon the word born. Born of woman, which takes you back to that initial promise delivered to Eve in the garden that there would be this one who would come from her line, you see. But the other caveat here is born under the law. 
So the law would measure whether or not he is living perfectly before God the Father. So you've got your two borns there, you tie it together, and you ask him, what's the purpose of all of this? I'm glad you asked, because the answer to this is that he was done so. He was born to redeem those who were under the law. Redemption. To redeem means to purchase, set free by paying a price. But not all, not that only. Because you're still in verse 5, and the purpose statement to redeem those who are under the law gets coupled with the next phrase, so that we might receive adoption. Adoption. Adoption as sons. And he's still tying it to his illustration of the Jewish, Greek, and Roman approaches of preparation for manhood. Adoption. You pull that together, and what adoption does for you and for me, spiritually speaking, is that it gives us the opportunity to experience adult standing, status, before God. And God will take the timeless and do it in a timely way. Jill Briscoe could attest to that. Stuart Briscoe wrote, My wife had an interesting experience some years ago. She planned to use our car one day, but I inadvertently took the car keys with me. Jill was frustrated. as She had particularly asked me to be sure not to do this. And all the men up right now are nodding their heads. However, it was done. Couldn't be undone. So she prayed about her day, about the time pressures before her, including the fact that I had gone off with the car keys she wouldn't be able to use the car. She committed the day to the Lord and asked him to work despite the delay. Listen. Two hours later, Jill was able to find another car key. She set off on her journey. Almost immediately, she picked up some girl hitchhikers who were bound for London. She discovered that they were German girls. And as they were going to a youth center where many German young people were meeting in a Christian conference, she invited them to go with her. After much debate and numerous refusals, they finally agreed to go. As a result, one of these girls committed her life to Christ. Now you're tracking with me. You're thinking the fullness of time, how the timeless converges in a timely way. The purpose, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Back to the story. She was a theological student in Germany. She had come under the influence of some teaching that, well, instead of leading her to an intelligent worship of God, had filled her with so much doubt and confusion. She had delivered an ultimatum to the God whose existence she doubted. She told God that if he was there, he should show himself to her in some way. He must do this within three months. If he didn't, she told him, I'll quit my schooling, quit theology, quit religion, and I think I'm going to quit living because there's nothing to live for. After explaining this, she turned to Jill 
with incredible emotion and said, the three months end today. Do you see how eternity converges with time? Do you see the relationship between the timeless and the timely? Do you extract the principles now from the fullness of time and relate them to the purpose of all this, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption? And as a result, this young lady enters into the family of faith. There's your first God marker found in this section. But there's a second God marker. I want you to see now what comes next to your way in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, the third member of the Trinity assures what the second member of the Trinity secures. The third member of the Trinity assures your salvation because the second member of the Trinity secured your salvation if you're part of the family of faith. And so God has sent now the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, now we have the opportunity to do likewise as Jesus did, Abba, Father. Now you pull that together with me because you understand the intimacy that is found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And now you have the opportunity relationally of calling God Father. And you think of the model of Christ on that cross where the first and the last statements on that cross deal with the idea of Father. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. In the midst of his agony, when it must have seemed as though time was eternity on that cross, he bookends the idea of God being his Father and maintains that sense of relational dynamic. I don't know how time is treating you right now as 2018 ends and 2019 begins. Don't make time eternal. Don't make the extremes of suffering eternal. Understand that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Understand that God makes everything beautiful in its time. And when you begin to think this way, and you go to the cross of Jesus Christ, you're able to better appreciate my times are in your hand. And now you're ready for the third God marker. And he emerges out of verse 7. He makes application now for you, for me, for our people of the communion table. Because in verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. And now your third God marker through God. 
And the promise of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in who Christ is, what Christ has done, making God's people heirs of the promise. And so we see now the now and the not yet aspects of this promise, and we tie it all together, and we can better appreciate then where there's somebody trekking through the streets in Switzerland, and he's pondering as he looks at these various timepieces. And as he does so, he's doing so, as he's entering into the end of this year and the beginning of the next year, and meanwhile, there's a dad who some time ago had placed on the back of his timepiece, my times are in your hand. Have you placed your life in God's hands? Because if you have, then you're ready for the bread and the cup. Father, we're thanking you for this great privilege, the opportunity to explore the relation of time with eternity, to understand that the God of the universe, God is sovereign over time. Time is not sovereign over God. Thanking you, Father, for that fact, that we can understand how the timeless and the timely converge together. We can't force beauty too soon. You make everything beautiful in its time. But we do embrace the fact that you have placed this eternal need in our souls that can only be filled by the eternal one himself. So, Father, we praise you. We thank you for this experience. We thank you for your word. And we ask now that we receive the bread and the cup in a way that truly honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.